6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Well, we are once again going to enter the Word of God, and you always do that with prayer, so let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this marvelous book, Paul's Epistle to the Colossians. We thank you, Father, for its insights. We do pray, Father, that you would be present. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would open these, these passages to our hearts and lives, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and that we each might become more effective stewards of the opportunities that you're bringing across our path as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands. Indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're in the second chapter of this remarkable book. And just to review a little bit, uh, we had the declaration of the deity of Christ. We found the answer to every heresy, every problem, and that's the person of Jesus. Not a system, a person. And there are four primary heresies that have sort of emerged in some of our discussion here. World, worldly philosophy in general, Jewish legalism in particular, oriental mysticism in another kind, and historical asceticism. Those are issues that emerge under the category we typically call the Gnostics. We went through an outline of the uh, uh, epistle, and uh, last time we went through the last half of chapter 1, so tonight we'll go through a major portion, roughly half, of chapter 2. And the danger we're going to address is uh, the empty philosophies and religious legalism. And uh, here we're going to see Christ's preeminence defended. It was declared in the chapter 1. It's going to be defended here in chapter 2. And so with that, let's just jump into chapter 2. Paul continues, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, and he'll go on here in a minute. Great conflict. What he really means is intense agony he has. And uh, the word uh, is agon is, is, uh, uh, the, is a term for the assembly of the Greeks at their national games. So the thing suggests a contest for a prize at their games. Generally, it, the word tends to mean any struggle or contest, a battle, an action at law, a trial. That's where that term is used. A great conflict in that sense. Notice the reference to Laodicea. As you've noticed all the way through this study, I'm really equating Colossians and Laodicea. They are neighbors of each other, but uh, the passages themselves link the two together. And this explicit linkage is, is important. They're only about a mile apart, and they were, they're instructed in chapter 4 to exchange letters. So we can assume that they are similar in the admonitions that God has for them. There are unique Greek phrases that occur only in this letter and in Laodicea. 
Uh, it stood midway between the hot springs of Hierapolis and the cold waters of Colossa. It was fed by an aqueduct from Hierapolis, the water being lukewarm when it arrives at Laodicea. So you can begin to see the, the use of some of these idioms in the letter. And uh, Laodicea was militarily undefendable. Its typical posture was one of compromise. And uh, so prophetically, Laodicea, the word itself means the rule of the people. And that sounds good, except it's supposed to be the rule of God here, not the people. But anyway, uh, was a self-satisfied church is the profile we see in Christ's letter to them. It's one of only two letters of the seven in which Jesus has nothing positive to say. And that's disturbing to, to appreciate there. And we're going to suggest, as many experts have suggested, as William Welty's forward to our book has suggested, that Laodicea of the seven describes the church of today. Each, every church can be profiled in elements of the seven churches. Each one has a distinctive style issue, pluses and minuses, but there's seven of them. And uh, in this case, we're talking the, the primary character of the church at large in broad terms today. And so the letter to Colossians seems to specifically address the doctrinal deficiencies of today. And that's one of the reasons this letter is so relevant to us. It's a marvelous letter anyway in terms of understanding the person of Jesus Christ. But specifically, its remedies, its exhortations, admonitions focus on our issues today. And we, uh, you saw this little summary in Welty's Forward. I have a summary here. This strange inscription that occurs on a cathedral in Lübeck, Germany. And uh, where Jesus says, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and then do not trust me. Whether you call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You, so it's a, it's a colorful little poem. Let's use a litmus test for your church. Has your church failed to tell you that you are a sinner? Has your church pointed out that you are a sinner? That's the main theme of the Bible. Does your church uh, press that point? Has the church failed to deal with you as a lost individual? Has your church made it clear that without Christ you are lost? Most of them don't. Has the church failed to offer you salvation in Jesus Christ alone? These are litmus tests of doctrine. And do they fit or don't they? You have to decide yourself. And uh, has your church failed to proclaim the horrible consequences of sin, the certainty of hell, and the fact that Jesus alone can save you from that? That's the litmus test. Well, let's move on here in Colossians chapter 2, second verse. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Wow. I want you to notice again, as we did earlier, Paul's intensity of prayer for people he'd never met, and yet they're on his intense prayer list. That's intended to be an example for each of us. And uh, so, knit together. See, truth unites, error divides. When you see these things divide, you know that there's error at the root of it. To be knit together is the idea. All riches, 
that's again pointing to the sufficiency of Christ, something that's often overlooked. And uh, incarnating the fullness of, of the Godhead and of all divine wisdom and knowledge for the redemption and reconciliation of man. That's uh, what the mystery of God is dealing with here. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures. All. It's not necessary to go elsewhere. Investigating human systems and philosophies for an explanation of the mystery of the universe and the relation of the Creator uh, to His creatures are, ex uh, you know, are redundant or extra extraneous. The person is the key. In Him are all the answers. That reads an issue that, that, that is going to challenge another thing, the necessity of psychology to meet, meet life challenges. We're going to review that when we get to verse 8. I'll defer getting to that here. We'll get into it a little later. And, uh, and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, wisdom is personified in Proverbs 8. Most of you recognize that. And uh, so wisdom implies the ability to defend what we understand. Knowledge suggests the ability to grasp the truth. They're slightly different, obviously. All of these terms are also used by the Gnostics. That's why Paul is using them here so intensely. And he's going to deal with some evidences here. In, that their hearts might be comforted. That's encouragement. Being knit together in love. That's the endearment. The Unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. That's enrichment. And we have full assurance of understanding, enlightenment. So we have all these four evidences that I had mentioned earlier. Let's move on to verse 4. This, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. See, the advocates of error delight in packaging their systems in the most attractive phraseology to entrap the unwary. It sounds good. It sounds eloquent. It sounds erudite. It sounds educated. But be careful. It's packaged to trap you. Verse 5. For though I be absent in the flesh, Paul says, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfast of your faith in Christ. That's the report he's getting from Epaphras. That's what he's complimenting him. That's what he's praising God for. Beholding your order. There's a word picture. There's actually six of them going to unfold here. Uh, in this case, the word order implies an army. It's really a military term. Both order and steadfastness are military terms as used here. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. And uh, again, here's a word picture of a pilgrim, a walk, if you will. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Again, word pictures. A tree, rooted, that's like a tree. And similar figures, by the way, in the Ephesian letter. Same, they'll be sound very familiar if you remember it. Rooted once and for all, but continually growing and built up in him. And so, it also we have uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, uh, the word pictures of a building. Built up is an architectural term. A school, established and taught, is an academic term. A river, abounding, suggests a river overflowing its banks. So we have in the rhetoric here these word pictures emerging. And uh, so one of the questions that emerges here, can the words of an unbelieving world have a detrimental of impact on a believer? And of course it can. So Paul really nails it here in verse 8. It becomes a very common memory verse to many. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, 
after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. What an interesting alarm to raise at the masthead, so to speak, especially for those that find themselves in a university setting. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. That is, the history of philosophy is the history of contradictory, discarded hypotheses. It's a history course through mankind, how he keeps changing his mind about things, and it's primarily a rhetoric of the meaning of words rather than any kind of uh, practical help to meet life's challenges. And uh, Plato yearned for a divine word, the word logos he uses, which would come with authority and make everything plain. And how interesting it is, that's exactly the thing that John uses as a title of Jesus Christ, the logos, the word. After the rudiments of the world, the passage says, the Greek word translated rudiments basically means like one of a series, like the ABCs, the basics. That's what the term suggests, okay? That uh, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world. The, you know, the rules, the basics of the world. Our whole ministry is based on a, epistemology, by the way, is the study of knowledge at scope and at limits. It raises the question, how do you know anything? And there's a very basic foundation that uh, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with, but let me just summarize it here because it's, it's simplicity. Your first step is to discover for yourself the integrity of the design of the 66 books we call the Bible. You need to discover for yourself the intricacy with which it's designed. You'll discover as you study it that every number, every place name, every detail is there deliberately. It evidences an incredible design. And what's astonishing about that design is you'll discover that the origin had to, become, had to come from outside time. That uh, you, you have things occur that make no sense except in terms of what happens in the future. Moses is, is concerned about snakes killing the people. He goes to God, pray and God says, put a brass serpent on a pole on top of a hill and those that looked at that will be healed. That's kind of weird. God chose to, to, to save them that way and it worked. That's fine. What's strange is that's a strange contradiction. A serpent is a sign of sin or Satan or something. And here's a brass serpent that if you look at that, you get healed. What's the message here? That's a little weird, isn't it? You can search the entire Old Testament from Numbers 21, where that occurs, all the way to the end, and there's no explanation. Why did God choose that weird way to go? In fact, when you get centuries later to the King Hezekiah, by then that brass serpent's still around. It's being worshipped like the Shroud of Turin or something. And so he destroys it. He calls it Nehushtan, a thing of brass, because they were worshiping it. So he actually had to destroy it to avoid it becoming a fetish and so on. But you never get an explanation. Why did God do that? Until you get to the New Testament. And Nicodemus, the lead teacher, comes to Christ at night, and Jesus explains to him, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. And you suddenly realize that that was an anticipatory sign. It makes sense in terms of the cross. Just as, and, and the, the, the brass was the metal that would take judgment, fire, so it's, it's, it's sin judged, is, what, is the idiom there, the Levitical idiom suggested. And Jesus, it points to Jesus Christ's crucifixion. 
But you stand back from this, it's mind-blowing to realize that makes sense if you knew in advance exactly what was going to happen in Matthew 27, the crucifixion and all that. You follow me? What I'm pointing out, here's a little example, there's thousands of these, but where it makes sense, but the seeds were planted centuries before the fact. You suddenly realize you're being pawns in an elegant design here, in a sense, okay? And that's my point. So the first thing, you establish the integrity of the design, and when you do that, you'll discover that design presents in advance a person that's coming. And that person, of course, is the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's one thing that Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, fails to do. Establish who he is. He, the plan he was following was laid out before the foundation of the world. And so once you understand who Jesus Christ is, he then, of course, authenticates the whole package. And that's the close of the loop, if you will. Uh, that's, that's the model. That's bulletproof. You can establish the integrity of design. There it is. Lay it out. And that clearly emerges. Every detail of Christ's life is genealogy. The whole, it goes on and on and on, hundreds of details. And once you discover who he did, and you, you suddenly realize who he is, he then establishes the rest. Who wrote the, who wrote the Torah? Moses. How do I know? Christ said so half a dozen times. Quotes from each of the books, and so on. So anyway, okay. Epistemology. Study of knowledge, its scope and its limits. And the study of epistemology in college is a waste of time. Because it's usually conducted by the philosophy department, and it's just a study of the history of words, rather than any methods and so forth. And... Uh, I want, when in, in the Institute, we have the Berean challenge, which is the study of the Bible. The second level is the, uh, what we call the Issachar challenges, okay? Now, it's interesting what we've discovered by this. The, message, the, the methods are totally different. When you're studying the Bible, you know it's true. The challenge is how do you, under, how do you uh, uh, understand it? In the Issachar challenge, you're studying news reports, intelligence reports, information that has bias and deliberate agendas and so forth. Your challenge there, your tools are just the opposite. They're inferential, inductive. The, the tools of a detective. The tools of the brain thing is like a, 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 a tri, uh, apologetics is like a trial lawyer defending a view before a jury. The tools of the Issachar is just the opposite. A whole different set of tools. And you don't get those tools in college, but you... So, and of course, uh, so the Berean plus the Issachar together makes up a program to lead to the, the doing. We call it the Koinos track. That's the practical shoe leather to pavement kind of thing. And uh, the, uh, we, the, it's motivated by the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Which we argue has nothing to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. And if you're going to take the name of the king, you better be prepared to represent him faithfully and competently. So that's the, that's the structure behind the Issachar. But it gets to this whole issue of tools and methods. But it has fascinated me for most of my profession. My professional background is in the information sciences. And it fascinates me how over uh, the last several decades, the information sciences are at the root of all the other sciences, whether it's quantum physics, the DNA, the nature of light, you name it. They're information issues uh, rather than the traditional ones. And we also can be, we have experienced the bankruptcy of value relativism. Alan Bloom was shocked to find himself on the cover of news magazines when he published his 30 Years from Columbia in a book called The, Amer the Closing of the American Mind. How our rejection of, of uh, the, re the reality of truth has totally bankrupt intellectually our universities. You can't find truth if you deny its existence. And that's the whole quest of learning in general and science in particular was the search for truth. 
And we live in a culture that denies that truth exists. It's all relative. You have your truth, I have mine. That means that our young people can just disregard all of history. Why study it? And so forth. Okay. The great books of the Western world, all that sort of thing. So in any case, there are two great systems when Paul wrote the letter to Colossians that are still contending over the minds of the Western world. One of them is Stoicism. Live nobly, and death cannot matter. Hold appetite in check. Become indifferent to changing conditions. Stoicism. Be not lifted up by good fortune or cast down by adversity. Man is more than circumstances. The soul is greater than the universe. That's the stoical perspective. The other system is Epicureanism. All is uncertain. We know not whence we come or whither we go. We only know that after a brief life, we disappear from the scene. It is vain to deny ourselves or any present joy in view of possible future ill. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Then we wonder why we have Columbine High School or some of these bizarre uh, uh, expressions of futility out of our young people. And so these two systems. See, Paul is saying, beware lest any man make a prey of you or, or, or carry you captive. See, the scripture nowhere condemns the acquisition of knowledge. That's not the point. The Christian may very properly avail himself of legitimate means of becoming better acquainted with the great facts of history, the findings of true science, or the beauties of literature. Don't, be a, don't close those things off. Just be on your guard that they don't destroy your grasp and, and awareness of the real truth. And understand that contemporary science today is not the pursuit of truth, tragically. It's the attempt to explain the observations of the physical universe while denying the existence of a creator. One of the most bizarre episodes is the debate over intelligence and design. That's astonishing that that's even a debate. It's an intense debate. I was at the Rand Corporation back in the early 50s, and we published a book, which was a milestone in those days, called A Million Random Digits in 1955. And to the average person, you laugh at that. You open this book, and it's full of random numbers. Isn't that stupid? No. It turns out that's very difficult to find. If you truly ran anything that you develop has an algorithm makes it not random. How do you get real random numbers? What they did was, using the best computers and the most advanced techniques, they examined those million digits to make sure there was no symmetry, no repeatability, no patterns. They washed it on computers to make sure they were truly unpredictable. That's what a random number is supposed to be. What's interesting about that experience, the reason I go through the trouble explaining that, Random, what they did was they made sure there was no design among the random numbers. It was truly random. Randomness, in information theory, randomness is the opposite of design. And we live in a culture where our kids in school are forced to learn that uh, these elegant designs that we're just beginning to understand happen by accident, by randomness. We've invented the most insulting god of all. The pagans used to worship wood, stay, wood and stone and stuff. We've invented a more insulting God of all. Nothingness. There was no creator required. It all just happened by accident. Which, of course, is the, the ultimate absurdity. In, in the very definitions of the information science, very definitions of, of science itself. And yet that's what we are forcing on our young people. Evolution isn't the only myth. There's, a lot, there's others. So as a Christian can properly ch cha uh, chase and absorb knowledge, of course, but let the Christian never put human wisdom in the place of divine revelation. That's what distinguishes us. Because God cares. He has revealed himself. He's gone to great lengths to reveal himself. And the first armament, if you study Ephesians 6, the armor of God, the first one is to gird yourself with truth. 
Everything else hangs on that, just like the girding the belt. Everything hung on it. Well, truth, truth is the backbone of your thing. It's the wisdom of this world, not its knowledge, that is foolishness with God. And I used to love this. Walter Martin had some fabulous messages on the ultimate oxymoron. The foolishness of God. You can't, you take that phrase, that's absurd. How can you speak of the foolishness of God from 1 Corinthians 1? There are some examples. Noah and his barge. God decides to wipe out the whole world and save eight people. So he has them build this boat, spends 120 years uh, in, having this thing in his driveway. I mean, the whole story is in its way. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's foolish. You know, go through the whole Bible. It seems God goes out of his way to do things in a weird way. The foolish of God. Moses and the brazen serpent. I just went through that one. Okay. Samson and the jawbone. You know, uh, uh, crazy, crazy. Elisha and Naaman, this, uh, the, the, the uh, Syrian general. Dip yourself seven times in the, this muddy river and you'll get rid of your leprosy. But he does and he does, of course. And Jonah and the fish story. What a bizarre. It, it's, it's almost as if God goes out of his way to do things weird. What we, we would regard, you think it would be a more direct, appropriate way to solve some of these problems. And what's the ultimate foolishness? The ultimate foolishness. Of all these things, what's the most ultimate foolish? The cross. The cross. Paul says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Indeed. Crazy that the entire universe is going to be measured by the events of a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Everything in the universe is going to be measured from that event. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Interesting thing about this verse. There are only two conditions. There are only two parts. You're either them that perish or them that are saved. This is one of the many verses that splits it right in two. Only two categories. So Christ is the antidote for human philosophy, for Jewish legalism, for Oriental mysticism, or carnal asceticism. Christ is the answer. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 